Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us at the Sports Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Quinn, with your other host, Dom DiTola. And we're here just talking sports. We're a couple of comics who love sports, who love talking sports. So, Hell yes. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what this podcast is about. We love the uh, interesting stories behind the athletes and the ridiculously good stats that some of these athletes have. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this uh, episode, we're going to get into our first tennis player ever. Yes. Andre Agassi. Absolutely. And he was possibly the greatest of his generation. So there's a bunch of debate about him and Sampras, who are the the magic and bird of tennis in the 90s. You he know? was the yin to Sampras's yang, basically. Yeah. Oh, that's a good one. And had a much more up and down career than Sampras's steady career, but still just as phenomenal yeah it i actually enjoyed the the ups and downs of his career because you're right sampras was on top for almost the whole time and agassi really had these pitfalls and these these obstacles that he had to overcome and then he did and won so many majors it was great and that's what's so incredible about it is his journey through all of this and the types of players he beat the types of players he lost to and the type of almost marketing he brought to the sport of tennis. Yeah, definitely. He was credited for the resurgence of tennis's popularity in the 90s, especially across the world and in the United States. He was uh, labeled as the the top American player to bring tennis back, and he really did. Absolutely. I mean, you, even if you didn't like him, you still wanted to watch Andre Agassi. Yeah. You know, you still wanted to tune in. Yeah, he was like that Howard Stern, like, I'm going to... If you like them, you watch them for an hour. If you hate them, you're going to watch them for an hour and a half. Exactly. I just, I just want to see what he does. Right? You because know? he was that talented and... Volatile. Volatile and towards the end of his career, so driven and even after it ended, so appreciative. Yes, yes. I definitely enjoy his attitude in the later, um, in his later career, but you can tell that... He, and we're going to get right into his beginning right here, him as a kid, he really didn't have any other life other than tennis. No, uh-uh. So some of his social skills were a bit, I mean, needed to be worked on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, born on uh, April 29th, 1970. Yep. In Las Vegas, Nevada, which is an interesting place for bringing up a tennis prodigy. I always thought that was interesting. I never knew that he was a, a Vegas kid, and he pretty much spends not only his pre-career, but his post-career life in Vegas and did a bunch of stuff in Vegas, which is I always thought was interesting. It, it's interesting, like, when I first got exposed to him in the 90s, because obviously, like, even though I'm not, like, a huge tennis guy, you always watch, like, the major finals, you yep. know, all the Grand Slam events, you see him, and even though you don't know he's from Vegas, looking back, you're like, okay, this guy is Vegas. Oh, yeah, you know? totally, yeah, looking back, that's a great, because with the mullet, and he definitely had the style that Vegas has, which is almost, like, flashy... The glitz and glamour. The like, glitz and glamour. Because I, I, I was watching some of his matches, and that quote from Swingers always came into my head, like, Vegas, baby, Vegas! Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's right. Um, his, I want to get into his dad, because his yes. dad was who pushed him into tennis, and his dad was uh, uh, born in Iran, I believe, as a... Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, I'll kind of take it away here, because yeah. there's some historical context for those of you who don't understand. Um, his dad was a boxer from Iran, Olympic um, boxer. Olympic boxer, yes, who had worked in Vegas as a waiter at the Tropicana. Yeah. And um, 
The reason I bring up the historical context, Agassi was not necessarily the family's original last name. It was uh, Agassian mm -hmm. with an I-A-N at the end, which means he's uh, ethnically Armenian and Assyrian, I believe, on his mother's side. Now, the reason they changed it was um, there are a lot of Armenian people, including actually one of my friends I grew up with in Denver. Um, his parents were born in Iran. Um, they really didn't, really wasn't a country until the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. And because they were Christians in the old original Ottoman Empire, they were persecuted a lot. So they dropped the IAN, which is very common among last names of people of Armenian descent. They changed it to Agassi so they wouldn't be persecuted and. And that's Almost why they genocided. Yeah, and yeah. that's why they left Iran or he left Iran in the first place. Him and his his wife was they were being essentially persecuted and not given opportunities that he felt like he deserved. Exactly. Yeah, it's um there's like an Armenian diaspora throughout the Caucasus region as well as throughout the Middle East. So hey, you don't throw your caucus on me, my friend. But right. yeah, that's it's that's a great um explanation of the mindset that his dad had, which was pretty much being held down his whole life. Held down, but now they're in a new country, and while his dad is trying to make it happen any way he can in a new place, yeah, he exposed it, and you can kind of see Andre and his work ethic when he really wants to turn stuff on during his career is you see that I'm giving my next generation an opportunity and even in his Hall of Fame speech, he talks about the same thing with his kids. Yeah, yeah. Reaching new heights, like you get to a certain level and then you just go for something out, the next greatest thing. Yeah. So his dad um, always planned on making his kids into tennis stars. So yeah. he, he moved to Vegas. He looked for a plot of land that he could build a tennis court on. Like in the outskirts of Vegas. Yeah. Because if, if you've never been past the strip yes vegas is just desert and especially then in the 80s or even in the late 70s i think when he did this it was like literally nothing but desert and that's what was so appealing to him was he could build this tennis court and not have any interference and what agassi said when he was a kid when he built it his father had no construction experience he just built this court out of sheer will yeah and it was a great court you know it it, it was completely right and it's one of those things where it's almost like the mindset of these Agassiz, like, I'm going to do this no matter what. Exactly. It's like a little elbow grease and determination. Yep. And hopefully this type of mindset passes on to my children. And you almost kind of, it, it almost reminds me of the Todd Marinovich story in a way. Okay. You know, only Agassiz didn't go in that while he obviously got burned out during his during his career, he never went the whole Marinovich way of throwing everything away. Yes, he he definitely bounced back. Yeah, like it almost. He even, you know, there are even there's even stuff out there where he talked about it was almost like a prison for him. Yeah. Well, here's the thing: his dad, with all of his gumption that he put into Agassi was a bit of a piece of shit. So he had an older brother named Philly who was pretty much his best friend. Yeah. And before they went to the youth nationals, I believe he, Agassi was 11 or 12. Philly says, hey, if dad tries to give you a little white pill, tell him no. Mm -hmm. And what he said was he's trying to give you speed. Yeah. And they're pretty much their um, 
decision was they couldn't they couldn't tell their dad no. Exactly. So he went to the youth nationals. He gave him his dad gave Andre Agassi speed. He purposefully played as bad as he could, but still won. <laughs> and then told his dad he felt sick from the pill, and his dad never gave it to him again. But that's kind of the mindset of like he needs to win at all costs. Yeah, and that's kind of what when I had read that, that's kind of what made that Marinovich connection. Yes, almost. Yes, you know, just I'm. He tried to create the perfect athlete. For his child. Mm -hmm. It's first or last for him. Yeah. It's that exactly. Ricky Bobby mentality, man. <laughs> if you don't chew Big Red, fuck you. Exactly. <laughs> so around 11 or 12, his dad makes the correct decision that he can't really teach him anymore in tennis and he needs to send him off to... Uh, the best school he can, the best teachers he can. Well, here's the thing about that was it's such a great little line in his book was his dad said, hey... We're going to send you to the Boletary Academy. In Florida, yes. In Florida. His mom goes, yeah, we just saw an NBC Dateline about that, about uh, them being in trouble with child labor. Oh, or it wasn't God. child labor, but it was them not sending them to school and yeah. just letting them play tennis all day. And yeah, and Agassi brought that up a lot. It was just... You send him there thinking he's going to go to school and you're just going there to be cutthroat and badass at tennis. Exactly. And Andre's dad heard that and was just like, perfect. Yeah. Because he didn't care about school. He cared about one of his one of his children becoming a, a one of the best tennis players in the world. That's like literally his only mindset. Yeah. And I, I know we'll probably get to this later in his post career with the things that he's done. Yes. But he seems almost embarrassed but driven because he refers to himself as an eighth grade dropout. Yes. He seems driven towards providing education, which is what he was not provided when he was younger well, to here's, other people. And, and I want to bring up his first coach, Nick Boletari. Yes, very much so. Um, who he hated when he first went there mm -hmm. because, well, he essentially went there and was playing for a couple of days. And then one of the counselors saw him because there's like 300 kids there. Yeah. Or, or I don't even know if it's that many, but there's a ton of kids. He saw him. He goes, hey, has Nick seen you play? Andre said no. And Nick came and watched him for like 20 minutes. He goes, all right, all right. Takes him to the office, calls his dad, and he's like, he can play here in this academy for free as long as he wants. Because his dad was worried. He only had enough money for him to be there for like whatever age. I think it was like a summer, yeah, yeah, or something like that. And he said, after watching your son play, we're keeping him for free. Yeah, you don't have to pay us. And that's, well, that's the potential that he essentially had. But then he said the conditions there were awful yeah like it's essentially like one of those day camps or, or one of those camps that you used to go to for a week and you're just like how is this still up and running like it's like camp crusty on the simpsons you know almost. exactly yeah. he was like dude the the water would shoot out of the spigot and it would just be like a straight one nozzle just like hitting you and you would just have to like run under and be like <laughs> ah it's like a gulag for creating the 90s best american tennis players exactly what it was but then in his book he he mentions that that he gets the realization that they at the Boletary Academy need him more than he needs them. Yeah. So he essentially runs away. He's like, I'm just going to catch a train back to Las Vegas. They go and pick him up and they're like, well, what do you want to stay? And he tells Nick, he's like, and this is when he's 15. He's like, I want wild cards into tournaments so I can become pro. Exactly, because he turned pro very early. I think it was 1986, so he would have been 16. Yeah, he was 16 when he turned pro, 
And he has this conversation with his dad where he's like, I'm thinking about turning pro. I'm thinking about taking this money. And his dad was such an asshole. He just goes, you have an eighth grade education. You mm -hmm. literally can't do anything else. And he, he was like, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear like, oh, this is great. You're going to turn yeah. pro. And his dad's just like, you're a piece of shit. This is all you have. But almost in his dad's mind, that's exactly what his dad wanted to hear. Exactly. It's like, looks like my son has the stones to compete. Let's see if he can do it. And he right off the bat did. He was the fastest yeah. player ever to a million earned. Four, 43 tournaments. Yes. I had read that. And I was like, 43 and you made a million dollars in that Era. Time period. Yeah. This was right before the money really got injected because you see in the 90s, it gets like crazy insane. money. Insane. Yeah. Absolutely insane. So like people say like, oh, that's when money started. No, this was right before money started getting injected. And he just kept getting quarterfinal, semifinal, final win. Like he, he really was one of the most consistent tennis players right off of the bat. Like what I found so interesting was... He turns pro in 86. Yep. By the end of the year, he's ranked 91st as a 16-year-old. Yeah. The following year in 87, by the end of the year, he's 25th. Yes. 88. He's 18 years old. When I was 18 years old, I thought I was hot shit because I moved to Hawaii by myself. Yeah. This guy was the number three ranked tennis player in the damn world. Touring the world. Yeah. And that's he still has uh, Nick as his coach at this point. Yeah. Um, and he mentions this in his book, how Nick was less of a coach and more of like a chaperone. Yeah. And he kind of gets this realization as he's turning 18, 19, and then something else starts to happen. He starts to lose his hair. Yes. And it's, which is what, when I'm researching this, it's one of the funniest and most ridiculous stories mm -hmm. out there <laughs> is in, gosh, let me, let me look at my notes. In 1990, it's the French Open. Yes. He loses to Andreas Gomez. And yep. the reason why he says he loses is because his he, he's wearing a toupee at this time. Yeah, and the, because he needs to keep up with his image. He's so image conscious. Yes, yes. And the night before, he like he's in France, so all the conditioners and shampoos are in French. And he's like, I put the wrong conditioner in. He comes out to his brother, Philly, who's completely bald. And he goes, his hair is just running down his head. Oh. And his, his brother's like, I don't even know what we're going to do. And they go and find a bunch <laughs> of bobby pins. Oh. Oh, no. And they essentially just like manicure it up. And oh. he's like, I was missing so many points because I felt like my hair was just going to flop on the court. <laughs> and it's, it was his first uh, uh, slam final. It was, yeah. 1990 was his first slam final. And he was opposed to playing not only in Australia, where he had probably his most success, yep. but because he's his own guy, he's all, you know, flash and proving people that this can be a little bit of a marketing game, he refused to play at Wimbledon because they wouldn't let him wear his tie-dye and Zubaz, you well, know? Here's the, yeah, here's the thing is he, he complained about the traditionalism of Wimbledon because they, they make you wear all white. Yeah. And something else that he hated that he didn't bring up at the time was they wouldn't let you practice at Wimbledon beforehand so and he was talking about the grass because yeah there's there's different surfaces for tennis and he was talking about the grass in on wimbledon was so different than everywhere else because it was essentially frozen so he's like it's like a sheet of ice and then grass and he was like the first time i went to wimbledon i was wearing all white and i got trounced and i was like why the hell would i go back to right. london and it's one of those things where he skipped it for two years 
And to think, to put it in perspective, he's top five in the world. Yeah. And he's skipping one of the slams. It's not one of the smaller tourneys. It's literally the one of the four and possibly one of the, the biggest one outside of maybe the U.S. Open. That is like the most traditional tennis tournament that there is. Yes. Like if you win Wimbledon, you're set for life. Yes. And he just said... No, it doesn't clash. Yeah, I'm not gonna. Know? I'm not even gonna go to Wimbledon. Yeah, and it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> and um, in this time, he starts playing the Davis Cup, which yes. is which is the American um, versus different country. I don't even know how to put it. You know, the, yeah, it's it's almost like the the Ryder the Ryder Cup. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, and he says in his book, I'm gonna keep referencing this book that. It was the freest that he had ever played tennis because he wasn't playing for himself. He wasn't playing for his dad. He was like playing for his country. Yeah. And he went on for like this time in the 90s. He had the best Davis Cup record of anybody. He had like 32 wins and one loss or some crazy. And he's playing with a lot of his roommates and classmates from the Boletary Academy too. Yes. So it's... It almost registers as normal for him. This is the close, as closest to normal as he's going to get in his entire life thus far. Yeah, it's interesting how intertwined these guys from this academy, but it was the top tennis academy, so you had all of the great players going there. Mm-hmm. Um, so he decides to forego Wimbledon. He's destroying in uh, the Davis Cup, and then he decides in 1992... To play Wimbledon again. Yeah, and he had just lost the 1990 U.S. Open final to Pete Sampras, who yep. was his big rival. He had lost, I believe, the 1991 French Open to his former roommate, Jim Courier, where he had it almost in the bag. Yes, and Courier and him have like a weird relationship. Yeah, but up until that 92 Wimbledon, which you brought up, he was always thought of as this is the flash in the pan guy. This is the guy who, when all the chips are down, can't get it done. Yeah, he can make it deep, but he can't close it out. Yeah. And in Wimbledon, this is his first time since his first appearance, or I think he might have had two appearances, but he ends up beating Boris Becker, who is his idol. He beat McEnroe in one of the uh, semifinals, I believe. Yeah, and beat McEnroe. And it's one of these things where he talks about it's uh, it was such a meaningful tournament to him because it was these guys that he grew up idolizing. Yeah, more Boris Becker than McEnroe, but he was still. It's still one of those things where it's just like he goes through this old class or this old guard of tennis and pretty much stamps it like, "Hey, I'm here and I'm going to be a, a force to reckon with." Because he's still like he's twenty two. Twenty two. Hey, everybody. Just want to take a quick break to uh, let you know that our Sports Experience podcast is brought to you by Engel Studio here, and uh, they're here in Tucson for all your recording needs. You know, he's, he's 22, and he has his entourage with, uh, I believe, his girlfriend at the time there. Yeah, uh, so I want to bring up... I want to bring it up, but let me... let me. Okay, okay. all right, all right. So after he wins Wimbledon... Um, he, him and Nick Boletari get into it. So Nick feels like he's not paying him enough, and he feels like he owes him a bunch of money. And Agassi is, like, completely off-put by this. Like, he, he doesn't see it coming mm-hmm. kind of thing. So he goes and looks for a new coach, and there's this guy named Brad Gilbert. Brad Gilbert is, like, 
the soothsayer for him. And well, that was the thing was he was talking with his brother and his brother was like, well, who on the tour do you hate playing? And he's like, I hate seeing Brad. And Brad just wrote this book called Winning Ugly. Exactly. And it's essentially what Andre needed because he was just trying to make every shot perfect. And Brad was like, why? Why would you do that? Like, you just need to win. Yeah. And yeah. it's almost like you see in almost every other sport, a lot of the most successful coaches are former players, but not like dominant players. Yes. They're the, like the last guy off the bench and they see how the game is played, how to improve, but they lack the natural talent to make it happen. Exactly. He they go down they go to their first dinner, him and Brad, and Andre asked them to analyze his game. And he just goes, If I had your talent, I would win every slam. And yeah. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, I would have every slam in the like I would win not every time, but like I would have that career grand slam of all of them. And he's just like thinking like, wow, like he really thinks that much of my game, and then he tells him what he's missing, which is this mentality. It's almost like game strategy. It is, yeah. Where, where he was just like couldn't see what he needed, and Brad comes in and changes his game to unbelievable levels. Yeah, absolutely. So then this is where we get into 1994's U.S. Open. Yes. Um, he beats Chang. Michael Chang, yeah. Um, I want to talk about Chang for a second. Yeah. He brings up Chang. He just goes, I just always hated the fact that when he would win, he would dedicate it to God. <laughs> like God looked down on this tennis match and was like, Agassi, out. Chang, you're in. <laughs> and it's such a great analogy for all these sports guys that always dedicate Dude, it to that's, God. Dude, that's my bit. Like where I talk about, because I was thinking about it. Like, I know. That's I'm, my bit about like, I just want to see a coach be like, Hail Satan. Yes. Thank you for that W. Exactly. You know? And that's what Agassi was saying. It was like, first off, God doesn't care about this tennis match, but why is God on your side? Yeah. Um, why so, are you so special? Exactly. So he's the first unseated player to win uh, the U.S. Open in the Open era. Uh, the last player to do that was, I believe, Fred Shields. Yeah. So his girlfriend at the time uh -huh. is, take it. Yeah. Is, well... Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields, who was the great, great niece of Fred Shields. Yep. Which is such a weird, there's all these weird little stories that... It all ties together. Yeah. Like just a weird, almost... The It's a small world, essentially. Yes. Yes. It, it's just a small world. So uh, Brooke Shields is his longtime girlfriend. She actually convinced him to shave his head. Yeah. And he has a shaved head at, that, at this point. Which is a good call. Yes. Because... Br Thank you, Bruce Willis, for making that a thing. Yes, no shit, because he looks better. The, the mullet, and I, I can't tell if the mullet just looks so ridiculous. Yeah. But with the shaved head, he just looks more together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a weird. It's a but these little uh, these little stories where he he has these interactions with these people that are like Brooke Shields and he goes to like uh, South Africa and gets super um, influenced by all the apartheid and everything that's happening Nelson there. Mandela, his hall of fame speech. He brings up Nelson Mandela uh, a few times. I was going to say able to meet him. Yeah. He, he pretty much because Nelson talks about how much he enjoys watching him play tennis. And he was like, really? Like he's really impressed by this guy and, and all of the, the community activism that he does. And he wants to then, do that yeah. you know like he sees that and wants to start doing that and I, he brings it up to brooke shields and she's kind of like why 
And and that's when he really starts to see the, the divide between them is he's like, ah, marrying an actress, she is just so not what I thought. Almost superficial in a way. Yes. It's like at that time, he's finally grown up and he wants more out of life. Exactly. He enjoys, and you kind of start to see his tennis game dip at that juncture. Yes. Is he's enjoying the limelight and enjoying not trying, but like in the mid-90s, really the only thing he's winning post-95 is the 96 gold medal at the Olympics against a very limited field. Yes. And he's the he's the only player with a gold medal and... and uh... He has the like ultra slam, I believe. Uh, yeah, yeah, I forget what they call it, but yeah, yeah, it's it's all the slams and the gold medal. But super slam, that's super what it slam, is. That's yeah, what it is. I know it. Denny's has it, but um, he yeah. at this point, him and Brooke Shields are he he's really getting into his mind and he's really playing some of the worst tennis of his life. And then what happens is he has this childhood friend who's doing a bunch of meth. Yes. Uh-huh. And he goes home, and his childhood friend is like, hey, we should get high off of this meth. And he goes, I couldn't think of a reason not to. Which is so disturbing when you bring that up, because when he was 12 years old, his older brother told him not to take the pill that his dad gave him. Exactly. It's these stories that just keep coming back, oh, intertwined. Um, just a quick another story that's intertwined. He's engaged to Brooke Shields. She's trying to like lose a bunch of weight and trying to get into this wedding dress. And she posts a picture of what she thinks the perfect legs are. Oh, no. And it's Steffi Groff. Well, that's just a bad decision right there. Who, knowing. if you don't know, uh, Andre Agassi divorces uh, Brooke Shields and then marries Steffi like two years later. Yeah. It's such an interesting... and. Those things, Andre didn't know her at the time. No, he didn't. I mean, he knew of her, obviously, because yes. she's one of the greatest women's tennis players Ever. to exist. I think she might be the greatest. It's hard to, it's so hard to compare eras, but it's one of those things. If but, it's not, if it's not the Williams sisters, yes. it's Steffi Groff. Exactly. Honestly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that was the other thing about comparing eras with uh, the new guys, you know, yeah. with the. Uh, Nadal and and uh, Federer and, and Federer. All, yeah. I can't think of the other guy's name for this. Djokovic. Djokovic, the Serbian who just hit a tennis ball into that girl's neck. The uh, the Serbian with Kosovar Serb ties, which is an entirely different non sports related episode. <laughs> oh my god, that would be a good one. I like that. It's trust me, Chris. I researched a lot about this in college for history classes, and hate runs deep. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Just saying, look forward to our next tennis episode. Yes. <laughs> Eastern European tennis episode, excuse me, or whatever they are. Balkans, but yes. Balkans, yes. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking there. But uh, let's get back to Andre. Let's get back to Andre. So he shaves his head. He gets into meth, and he does it for about <laughs> six months, which I, for some reason, the shaving the head and getting into meth. Is I just know. Like, it's just like, what sort of white supremacy weird shit are we getting into <laughs> exactly. right now even though he's just like not at all he's just yes um it just paints an odd picture <laughs> and he has this trainer at this point and i want to talk about this trainer his name's gil i forget what his last name is i think it's reyes yeah gil reyes um he was the 1990 trainer for the unlv basketball team that won the championship Tark the shark yep <laughs> so he um Andre, being a Vegas kid, would go to UNLV and work out, and there was this big trainer guy who would just watch him and be like, the hell is this guy's 
like he with a look on his face like this guy has no idea what he's doing right and he finally starts talking with him and gill's like what are you training for it looks like you're training to be like a like a heavy like a bodybuilder yeah and and andre's just like i don't know they just tell me to do this and i do it and then he becomes his personal trainer and that's what really changes his game with brad at the same time you're learning the you're learning the fitness part from Gil, but you're learning the ins and outs and nuances of tennis with Brad. Exactly. Which makes him an even more dominant tennis player. Yes. So he has this six months period where he's doing meth and he pretty much has the worst uh, record of his, of his career. He like is going out in the first round, which is so rare for someone of his caliber. And he, what I found extremely interesting is when he starts building himself back up from that, he does the Challengers Cup. I love where, that. Where he fights his way back, because he was the world number one in 1995. By 96, 97, 98. I think he was ranked like 236. He's not even ranked. He's oh, okay. back on the Challenger Cup circuit. And he's changing his scores playing up-and-coming tennis players. Yeah. He has hit rock bottom but is working his way back up so and it's so fascinating and at this point he's done with the meth and he's working out like crazy with gill but he gets a drug test from like three or four months ago and they're like hey and he pisses hot there's minute traces of methamphetamine where did that come from he writes a letter that says he accidentally drank a soda that his friend spiked mm -hmm. which he was like it's kind of true he used to spike his sodas and i had drinking it at that time but we were doing meth yeah and they the tennis commission believed him and didn't suspend him which was great because he was done with the meth Yes. And it was behind him, and now he was ascending. And if he had gotten suspended, it could have really messed with his psyche. It would have ruined everything. He probably would have gone back to the meth yeah. because he didn't have any tennis anymore due to it. It's one of the lies that he said that was, it's the only time he ever lied about what happened. And he was like, it was just the right decision because I was already back Doing yeah, what I he was to already do. on the right track. Yes. He had put it behind him. It wasn't like he was lying and being like, all right, well, that that thing's behind me. I'm going to go do more meth. Exactly. Or like, I don't, I didn't learn this lesson. And, and what he said was the punishment that he felt like he uh, occurred to him was the the losing in the first round because he wouldn't, he almost would never lose in the first round. I think he lost four consecutive tourneys in the first round. Yeah. And mm -hmm. people were just like, God, he is so done. Like everybody was writing him off as... He was he was back page. He was yesterday's news. Yes, at that point. And then ninety eight. Mm -hmm. So ninety eight, he comes in ranked a hundred and tenth. Yeah, and he wins five non slam titles in like the first half of the year, and pretty much goes from one ten to sixth, which was the highest jump of anybody in like a decade. Yeah, and by nineteen ninety nine, and he goes to the French Open. He's already won all of the major grand slams at least once he's yes. won the u.s open he's won wimbledon and he's won the australian open multiple times yeah he won twice i think at that point and he goes to the french open where he had lost to his former roommate jim courier i believe in 1990 yes and, and a tough ended... tough battle too yes. i think it was five sets and, yeah. and they were just battling and i'll uh, just a quick one oh do it dude jim courier's coach brad gilbert no Nick Boletari. Oh, he kept So him. it's All at right. the point where Nick breaks off from Andre. Yeah. And he takes him, 
he takes this other tennis player and Andre's like without a coach. Yeah. So it's in this middle area, you know, it's, it's, that's the little, the little stuff, you know what I mean? You're yeah, just like, yeah. whoa. Um, <laughs> so in 99 French open, he's down two sets in the final match, two yeah. sets to love. So it's not even like three, you know what I mean? It's yeah. It's, and all you got to do is win three out of five and yeah. he's in an O2 hole. Exactly. And he comes back and wins three straight sets. Um, and he credits Gill for having the conditioning and the ability to get all that whatever's left in the tank yep. out of him. Well, yeah. I want to I want to talk about the type of tennis player he is, right? Yes, now. yeah, let's do that. Because I was reading this and you don't really know about this if you're kind of on the outskirts of tennis. He almost never charges the net. No. And he is a baseline player and they say he probably is the greatest return artist of ever in and, tennis. And that's what made him such a great contrast and made the Sampras rivalry so incredible was yes. Sampras was known as the guy with the fastest serve, but Agassi was known as the guy who could return the serves the best and do it even faster, bringing it back yes. than the original serve. Yeah. It's, it's such a interesting thing, these styles in tennis. And he was, he had this nickname of the Punisher yeah. because he would make his opponent run and that's why every single player that played him nobody ever wanted to go five sets no because he had always that little extra in the tank yeah yeah which is crazy to think like because in the beginning of his career this is why i thought this was so interesting um when he would go five sets he would die out and he said that he needed to be able to beat these guys essentially if they go five sets. Yeah. And, and that's where Gil comes in and trains him to be the greatest, I mean, baseline tennis player that there probably ever was. But that's the whole Gilbert thing, if you think about it, is, yeah, you might take the first two from me, but I'm going to win ugly. Exactly. I'm going to find a way to win these last three with guile and tact and things like that. Exactly. And that was the other thing was it was a psychological game with them. They kept breaking people's serves. Yep. They kept sending it to where they, where they were most vulnerable. Like if they had a shitty backhand, they would just like hit 40 balls straight to the backhand and it would just like yep. break these people. It, it was really interesting the the way they they approach tennis absolutely it was different than all these six one six two six three guys that could just hammer a a serve and would rely on their i wouldn't say athleticism because that's where that's where andre is killing these guys but it's almost like their their natural abilities yeah and their natural ability where they would take it would be like i'm gonna finish this guy out in the first three sets yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, they don't want to go 5. No. Yeah. Nobody wants to. <laughs> and uh you're and I love the bringing up Pete Sampras cuz that is the rivalry and they have the two opposite styles. Yeah. Sampras is very reserved, almost robotic in a way yeah. and just a dominant serving talented type of player and then you have the brash Agassi coming out who has a completely different style who acts completely differently, will say what's on his mind. And it made for great tennis, tennis to become popular. Great Nike commercial with them in it. Yes, yeah. yes. That was one of the uh, things that Andre said that he was like, when they were shooting this Nike commercial, he didn't realize that he was going to run into Pete pretty much every slam. And that's what uh, Sampert says. He was just like, Pretty much every slam that either of us won, we had to beat the other either in a semi, a quarter, or the final. Well, I saw I saw a great um, tennis commentator talking about it, and he was like, look, 
Pete and Andre aren't the type of guys who will go out after a match and have a beer together. They're not going to be friends yes. off the court. But if you ask either one about the other, neither will have a negative word to say about the other one. Yeah, there was an interview with both of them, and they both just said that they have immense respect for their each yeah. other's game kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, and then there, the debate of who is better, because that's just always what gets thrown around. Yeah. Um, Sampras has more major wins, but never had that win on the French court, on yeah. the French on the clay. clay. Yeah. And it's one of those things where Agassi says when he won in, in uh, 99. 90, in 99. To tie it all together. It, yeah, it was like, because he, he always states that he hated tennis. Yeah, it, which is an interesting thing, but like it really rings true because it was really beaten into him from such a young age. Exactly. He had no other choice. So in the back of his mind, he's like, I'm only doing this because it's the only thing I was taught. And it's the only thing he could do. Yeah. Even though he's making millions upon millions. But he said when he won that French Open, it was like the first time that his heart opened and like he felt this unbelievable joy because he had this career slam of all of you know the super slams well i mean eight-time grand slam winner of all the major tournaments yep i mean he has them all at yes. least once seven times was a runner-up he had the year-end championship the davis cup the olympic gold medal one of the most accomplished tennis players ever well i want to talk about the 98 99 so okay. he wins or, i'm sorry 99 2000 he wins the french open he then goes to wimbledon and loses to pete sampras in the final then goes to the U.S. Open and wins, yeah. and then the year is over. So they that the U.S. Open's the last tourney of the year. Yeah. The year the next year starts up the Aussie Open. Aussie Open. He goes there and wins. Exactly. So he he is he's the finals of four straight slams and wins three of those four slams. That's like some Tiger Woods stuff with golf. I don't almost. think anybody has matched that. They've matched it in the women's game, the Williams sisters and shit yeah. like that. But it's one of these feats that. I don't think they're going to match in the men's game. No, and it's like Nadal is super talented on clay. Yes. So you're probably not going to get him if you're Djokovic or Federer. Exactly. Djokovic, who beat Agassi's dominance in the Aussie Open, you're not going to beat him there. Not on hard and court. And then yeah. Federer at Wimbledon, and then you have it's it's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, and that's why I have such respect for for Agassi is um, he since. There was only one player before him to ever do this. Yeah. And it, it was uh, Rob Laver, I believe. Was Rod Laver, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of those things where he was such a all-around great tennis player. Mm -hmm. um, towards the end of his career, he, he still was winning the Aussie Open. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's one of those things where you could tell that's where he was most comfortable. Yeah. He said he loved Australia and just like he would feel comfortable there. So Who, he was, who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, so to 2001, he, he won again. And he was the only player to be in the top three um, ranking for three decades, three yeah. different decades. So that's another one that he has. And then one of his last matches was the 2005 uh, U.S. final, which yep. he lost. Yeah. But people were saying that making it to the final in 2005 when he was, what, 35, 35 yeah. was probably one of the greatest accomplishments. Not winning, but... Just making it making there it, and yeah. playing competitive tennis. And playing... That was the thing was... Um, I forget who he lost against, but it's not somebody that's necessarily a huge name. But they said the the tennis that he was playing in that was some of the best 
you know, because he was still taking guys to five sets and crushing them. Yeah, you know, and and his body by that point though had finally kind of started to break down on him. That's like what anybody of that age. That's but, what yeah. people said when he got to the seventh match, which is how many you need to win for a slam. His you could just tell he was kind of dead. Yeah. Um, before we get out of here, I do want to talk about his. After his post career, I want to talk about the good, yeah, because I, I think that that's is. very important. Yeah, because his lack of education, like you were saying, like when he was with Brooke Shields, he he had this feeling of being less than everybody else. This inadequacy yeah. of not being as knowledgeable as everybody that at least even finished high school, you know. Yeah, and he opened up this. Uh, this college preparatory academy. I think it's the Andre Agassi. Yeah, in Las Vegas, in his hometown. It's like a charter group of charter schools. For uh, underprivileged, underprivileged kids. So it's not like a, a rich charter school, if you will. No. It's uh, tuition-free, but you have to kind of get in. and Unlike a scholarship, but yeah. like, you know, giving back to the community and people that were almost in his situation growing up. Exactly. And he actually grew it and he actually built the original school in one of the worst neighborhoods in Las Vegas. And he says that it's, uh, it's really improved the neighborhood and they've never had a window broken or graffiti because the community has really accepted this as a great thing. Yeah, no, I mean, and he did it where he grew up. Yeah. He, he gives back him and his wife, Steffi Graf, obviously they give back to, their community, his community. Yes, yes, which is, and it's so great because they have like 100% graduation rate, 100% college acceptance rate, and it's from these families that would probably not graduate high school. like Never get the opportunity. Exactly, and he's just, that's what he's really big on, is giving people the opportunity to succeed. Yeah. And I, I love that, you know? Absolutely. Um, he also did some... I mean, Nelson Mandela was his, like we were saying before, like was one of his biggest influences. And he also did a bunch of other work um, throughout, I mean, South Africa and and I think Germany because um, his wife. Yeah, his wife's from West, or now Germany, but yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Former West Germany. Uh, just a quick story to get us out on um, when Steffi Graf and Andre Agassi's dads first met. Uh-huh. Um, about five, ten minutes into them meeting, they both peeled off their shirts and were ready to fight. That's so awesome. So August, he, he's like, so my 69-year-old father was ready to fight <laughs> Steffi's 65-year-old father, and I had to literally jump in between them and grab my dad. And he goes, what were you guys arguing about? And he goes, he starts talking shit on your backhand, and I started talking <laughs> shit on Steffi, because Steffi has this thing called the Steffi Slice. And yeah. he goes, that's a bullshit shot. And he goes, and it just escalated. <laughs> like Randy Martin, what do you want to do, huh? Yeah, no. What do you want? to do it's exactly like that i thought this was america oh i'm sorry I, arresting me for what arresting me for what i don't know how to stand up for myself oh and what was ridiculous is they were both ex-boxers so they yeah. weren't it wasn't like a playful thing they were ready to like seriously this beat is the like shit a senior circuit beat down oh i wish there was like god if youtube was a thing back then oh my god yes exactly old man fights yeah all right. Thank you all very much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to that podcast. This is just a stock message at the end of all of our podcasts. So we hope you enjoy. You listen to whatever athlete that was. Give us a follow at the Sports Experience Podcast on Instagram. Also, myself at Sequin Comedy on Instagram. Also, Totola Dominic on Instagram. Just follow us all around. If you have any suggestions for any athletes you want us to do, shoot us an email at the Sports Experience Podcast at gmail.com. And we always 
always, our recording right here at Angle Studio. Thank you all very much. <laughs>